So last week's sermon was a bit rough. Um, and this week, it's going to be worse. Uh, yeah, you're right. So if you want to leave now, uh, you know, grab the opportunity while you can. So last week was all about confession and confession of sin. And like I said last week, whoever wants to talk about sin, right? Who wants to spend half an hour on Sunday morning being beaten over the head about how terrible you are and how you need to confess? But that's what it was last week. But it seems that a lot of people in society today think that confession is kind of all we need to do. And, and in fact, to some extent, our modern society actually quite likes the idea of public confession. Um, and society kind of reports that as long as the sin that you're confessing to in public is a socially acceptable sin, right? So if you confess publicly, publicly to feeling a little bit, um, I don't know, what, what, what did I use here? What example did I use? Um, I can't remember now. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit vain, maybe. You know, that, that's kind of socially acceptable. But to admit on, on in public that you're a serial killer, that doesn't go down quite as well. But there are some socially acceptable sins where it's, there's a sense of appropriateness to just, you know. Because our society likes this idea of being authentic and being real. And so the thing that you need to do is to appear on Oprah and announce that you're authentic and real. Unlike other people in the who aren't. Just putting a little, um, I'll mention some more about that later. Um, but it's what our society, it's what our culture just likes to hear, right? Some, some sense of, of exposing myself to everyone. And I'm, I'm, I'm authentic, I'm being vulnerable. And, and our society kind of likes that. And people will respond with a bit of a, oh, don't be so hard on yourself, you know, being vain is not that bad a thing. Or, or, or what's even more socially acceptable is, yes, you are a terrible person, you are vain, but it's okay. And, and so we get this, this, this kind of warm, fuzzy feeling of confessing our sins in, in some sort of public space. And, and people will applaud the public confession and say it's wonderful because it's all out there. But the Bible is never just satisfied with confession. In the Bible, confession is never quite enough. And, and in fact, more than that, as, I think as we saw last week, the biblical understanding of confession is a little bit different to the society's understanding of just being vulnerable. But the Bible always wants us to take things a step further and move from confession to repentance. And that's the big step that the Bible calls us to take, and it's not necessarily an easy one to, stay, to, to take. I think sometimes some people in church get a little bit confused as well about this idea of repentance. And in and so, some Christian circles it's been the case that repentance is what you did all those years ago when you first became a Christian. I repented of my sin, I said a little prayer that included the word repent in it, and now I've become a Christian and I never really need to think about repentance ever again. It was along the lines of, I was bad once and now I'm just trying to be a better person. That's the idea. But Martin Luther, um, not the civil rights guy, but the, the reformer from 500 years ago, he nailed 95 pieces to a church door, and that those pieces are really just 95 points of debate. And these are the things I want to discuss, he said. And the very first thing that he put up there, he said, the very first thing I want to argue, the very first thing I want to debate is this. He says, um, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers be one of repentance. So, so the idea of repentance then is not just a one-off event that happened back then, but Martin Luther's understanding of it certainly was that as Christians, we would live an ongoing lifestyle of constant, ongoing repentance. And the reason that it needs to be an ongoing lifestyle of constant repentance is because we, even as Christians, tend to live an ongoing lifestyle in the pursuit of sin. 
And repentance just means to turn 180 degrees. It means just to turn around and go the other way. It means we were, we were pursuing our sin and now we need to pursue Jesus. And what, what Martin Luther was saying is that it, we, we seem to spin. We seem to do 360s and not 180s. Because we, we're constantly going back to our sin and being called to come back to Jesus and then going back to our sin and being called to come back to Jesus. And so there's this constant lifestyle of ongoing repentance to abandon our sin and to pursue Jesus. A constant turning, a constant return to Him. So last week in Ezra 9, we saw Ezra's confession. And we saw that there was, in the confession, there was uh, an acknowledgement of sin, but there was also a, um, uh, just the, the hope of forgiveness and grace and righteousness that is given to us in Jesus. All good stuff. But this week in Ezra chapter 10, we're going to see what happens after confession. What's the next stage? Because it wasn't enough for this post-exilic community to say, we're sorry, to go, oops, we were wrong, oops, I did it again. And then carried on, as though there's no change at all. But rather that confession must be followed by change, otherwise what's the point? So, Ezra chapter 10 this morning. I'm only going to read the first 17 verses. The last part of this chapter is just a list of long names, which we're going to skip. You can read them for your benefit this afternoon at home while you're lounging in your swimming pool. I'm sure it'll be edifying to you. Uh, Ezra chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Israel, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying, by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. So now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and the Levites and all of Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Israel withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehoniah, the son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food, drank no water, because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders, and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem, and on the twentieth day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. <laughs> then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You've been unfaithful. You've married foreign women and into Israel's guilt. Now make a confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. So the whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You're right, we must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it's the rainy season, so we can't stand outside. Besides, this man can not be taken care of in a day or two, because we've sinned greatly in this thing. So let our officials act for the whole assembly. 
Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come and set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jaziel, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatiah, the Levite, opposed this. And so the exiles did what was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men with family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases, and by the first day of the first month, they had finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. And then just the very last verse, all these had married foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives. I've got to say, it's a bit of an awkward passage this morning, isn't it? <laughs> We've just read about a mass divorce that's taken place, which is a little odd. Uh, and not only is there this mass divorce, but it's approved by the priests, by Ezra. It's like, yes, this is a great idea. Let's do a mass divorce thing. And you kind of read that and go, what is this? Can, do we apply this to ourselves? Um, if your spouse burns the toast this week, if the odors that emanate from him are just too much, and we get here next Sunday, um, perhaps we'll go down to our house, we'll have a mass baptism followed by a mass divorce. Right? Is that how this works? And I think, I hope we get that. No, that's not what this passage is about. You remember, of course, that the issue at stake here is that the holy people of God had become unholy, and that the holiness had nothing to do with skin color. So you remember last week, the whole thing was, you know, this interracial marriage, is this a bad thing? And, and, and this is, that, that's not the case, it's never the case in Scripture. And in, in fact, if you go back a little bit, you find that Moses married an Ethiopian woman. Uh, wonder what kind of his skin is. And when, when Miriam gets all upset, and Miriam's like, this is a bad idea, and she doesn't like Moses' new wife, God speaks. And God says to Miriam, uh, take a look at your hands. And it says, Miriam, Miriam turned white with leprosy. And it's almost as if though God is saying, is that white enough for you, <laughs> Miriam? And Miriam then has to leave the camp and sit outside for two weeks while she heals, and the whole camp sits waiting for Miriam. So there's never an issue in the Bible of cross, cross-racial or cross-cultural marriages. The issue is always about holiness. And holiness has to do with the state of the heart and not with the level of melanin. So that being said, though, even despite that, this is still a tricky passage. These people have got married to the wrong, wrong woman, it would appear, and the solution is, let's get a divorce. So again, do you get to say, I've married the wrong person. I've discovered this after 50 years of marriage. It's the wrong person for me. Can you now legitimately get divorced? Can you send the woman away along with the kids? I mean, that, to some, that might sound like a great idea. I'm, I'm somewhat conflicted about this passage because just, here's the other thing, right? Just because it's recorded in Scripture doesn't mean that they did the right thing. There are some parts of the Bible that are prescriptive, in other words, they tell us what we should do, and there are other parts of the Scripture that are just descriptive. They describe what happened, but not necessarily that it should be done like this all the time. So, for example, in Acts chapter 1, the church decides that they need a new leader to replace Judas. And they, they throw dice, they draw straws to choose the next guy. I'm not sure if that's the best way for us to appoint a new elder in our church. Let's just roll the dice and see what comes up. It's what they did, but it doesn't mean it's what we should do. And so here again, there's a case of it's what they did, but it's what they should have done. 
It's a patriarchal age. Sending a woman off with a divorce and kids leaves her and the children incredibly vulnerable. There's no jobs available for them to go to. There's no government safety net uh, or some sort of government payout or handout. There's no homes for abandoned women. The only chance that these ladies have is to go back to their original homes, go back to dad, go back to brothers, go to uncles, and hope that one of them will take them in. So it, it just, it's kind of rough. To add to this, the whole idea of just get a divorce, uh, today there's, uh, you can get a divorce, you, you can get a no-fault divorce today. So it used to be that you had to prove that there was a reason for divorce. Now, you can go down to the courts and just say, we're bored with each other. And the judge will go, okay, and sign it off. Just pure boredom is good enough for divorce. <laughs> but the Bible runs things a little bit tighter. God's a little bit more, you know, restrictive in terms of what, what, what are the reasons for divorce. And he certainly allows for reasons for divorce. There are some circumstances where divorce is allowed, where divorce is permitted. But is this one of those reasons? Does this qualify? So raising all those sorts of questions, here are a couple of thoughts around this passage that might just make it a little bit easier to kind of swallow what's going on here. So to start with, some commentators suggest that the word that is used here for foreign woman is not the word that's usually used in Hebrew for wives. In fact, it's, it's far similar to, far more similar to the word used in Proverbs for prostitute. So maybe this isn't about divorcing wives, maybe this is about stop visiting prostitutes. Maybe this is about leaving your mistress and not leaving your wife. Then, right at the end of the Old Testament, the very last book of the Old Testament is, is the, um, it's the book by the very first Italian prophet, Malachi. You know, Malachi. Malachi, as the Hebrews would say. And in Malachi chapter 2, Malachi says this. So, so, wait, well, before, before I say it, Malachi was a prophet who prophesied at the same time as Ezra. So while Ezra is being priest in Israel, while Ezra's come back to, to, to Judah, to Jerusalem, to restore what's going on in the community, coming with the word of God, Malachi is at the same time prophesying and announcing, this is what God is saying to you. And here's what Malachi, Malachi chapter 2 says. He says, you have abandoned the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, and then he says, and you married the daughter of foreign gods. And so again, you just catch in Malachi that it's a religious issue, not a cultural issue. It's the, the daughter of foreign gods that's the big issue. And then at that point, Malachi then says, and God hates this kind of divorce. Well, what kind of divorce? Well, this kind that says, I was married to someone who was part of the covenant community. I was married to a good Jewish girl. And, you know, we were, we were great for a couple of years, but then some Canaanite lady with her idols caught my eye, and I've divorced my wife, or I've been unfaithful to my wife, in order to go and either remarry some Canaanite idol worshipper, or just to take her on as a mistress on the side. So, so I think there's what's going on here in, in this passage. Either the Israelite men have returned from Babylon with a good Jewish lady and got to Babylon and were bored and tired with her, but have been enamored with some, some Canaanite girl and have either 
divorce their wives to go and get married to her, and she's now offering him bacon for breakfast on Saturday morning because she's a godless heathen who doesn't know that bacon apparently is bad for you. And God's just going, whoa, that's all wrong. You can't just walk away from your covenant wife in the covenant community and go and marry some idol worshiper. It could also just be the fact that good Jewish boys are very good Jewish girls, but they find that the Canaanite prostitutes are offering a little something on the side. And we know that there was all sorts of bizarre religious prostitution in those days, where, where prostitution was an aspect of, of, of dodgy temple worship. And so it may well have just been a case of the good Jewish husband saying to his wife, listen, I'm going to be late from work tonight because, um, uh, uh, I've got to think of an excuse, uh, so I'm going to, you know, I've got, I've got temple worship tonight. <clears throat> um, and you know exactly where he's going, right? And he's off to see his mistress, the prostitute. And so either way, whether it's you divorce your first wife, your Jewish wife, your, your wife of covenant, to go and hang out with idol worshippers, or if you're still married to her, just proving yourself unfaithful by having a mistress on the side, either way, this is a mess. Either way, this is bad. Either way, this needs to be resolved. And I think that puts us in a completely different light. Then it's not so much about mass divorce, but actually separating yourself from something that you should never be attached to in the first place. And it, it, it may have been that there was a time, it seems like there was a time, when the, when the community kind of turned a blind eye to this kind of behavior, when the community were like, eh, it's okay, no one knows, you know, keep it, keep it covered. But when Ezra returns, and begins to, and brings with him the word of God, then there's this moment of, this is bad, this is wrong, this needs to change. And so where this goes for us, and the application for us is, that this is not about mass divorce, next begin. This is not me saying something about prostitution, although, stay away from prostitutes, right? And it's certainly not even a message about anyone who was previously divorced, that's not the case either. What this is, is it's a message to all of us to get caught in compromise. It's a message to any one of us who gets caught in being unfaithful to our God by aligning ourselves with the gods and the idols of this world. When we associate ourselves with the daughters of the gods around us. It's a message for all of us who've been fooled by our society and our culture, whether knowingly or unknowingly, and have been caught up in sin. Where we've been enticed away from God by the smell of bacon. And it's for all of us. Because we all sin. And whether it's a, a little, or a so-called little sin like greed or gossip, or whether it's a major sin like you're a serial killer before moon, we're all guilty in one way or another of sin. And sin must be dealt with decisively. And so last week the sermon was, confess your sin. Own it. Be appalled at your sin. And find forgiveness. But today is about saying being appalled is not enough. Sin must go. And the evil root of pride that produces the kids of arrogance and deceit, or the evil root of bitterness that produces the offspring of, of anger and greed, whatever it might be, must be excised, must be cut out, must be divorced. In the words of John Owen, the old Puritan, he says, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. So then what we have here in this passage is not a commentary on marriage and divorce. But we have here instead a pattern of repentance. And we see the pattern of repentance in the words of a guy called Shekinah, 
And you're like, who is Shekinah? And the answer is, no idea. And this is the only time he ever appears in the Bible. He's just some random dude. And this random guy comes up to Israel and says, my name is Shekinah, and I've got a couple of thoughts on this. And we could, um, you know, just ignore everything, but it's something of interest. Here's something of interest. Had we actually read that list of names, and you managed to stay awake while I read this, um, you would have discovered, and if you've been paying attention as well, you would have discovered that Shekinah's dad, Jehiel, appears in that list of names at the end. And you would have discovered that not only does his dad, Jehiel, appear there, but six other family relations, descendants of Elam, his uncles, or perhaps his brothers. Now, here's what that list of names is. It's the final list of the names of the men whose, either whose wives have refused to give up their idols, or it's the list of men who have refused to give up going to visit the prostitutes, hanging out with their mistresses. So what the Israelites have done, what the people have done, is they've, they've, they've done the investigation, they've had people come and they've investigated all the stories, and at the end of it they come, there's these 111 guys who refuse to change, who refuse to repent. And who appears in the list of people who refuse to repent? Shekinah's dad. And uncles, brothers, whatever. So the point there is that Shekinah is personally connected to this. It may be that he grew up in a home with a Canaanite stepmom, force-feeding him bacon and worshipping idols on the side. It could be that it's not his stepmom, that it's actually his mom, and that he's the descendant, he's the son of a mixed marriage, and that his mom continues to worship idols. It could be, though, that actually his dad remains married to his Israelite wife, but once a week on a Thursday night, dad's going, I'm going to stay late at the office tonight, and Jehiel knows what that means, of to see his mistress. Whatever it is, the point is that Shekinah is personally invested in this issue. So he's come to Ezra to say, we need to change this, and you're like, why, why does he do that? Is, is he trying to get back at his dad? And I'm going to say, I doubt it. In those days, that again, the patriarchal family structure was supreme, and you would never diss your dad in public. Now, of course, we, we go on Oprah to tell everyone how bad our dad is. We announce on Oprah how dad has cut us off and won't give us pocket money anymore, and um, how dad won't take our calls. Um, but back then, you wouldn't do that. Back then, you would not publicly say something negative about your dad. So this is a huge step for Sheikh and I. This issue has personally affected his life, and he recognizes the need for the community to do something about it. And so we see in his words four things about repentance modeled for us this morning. So four things about repentance modeled for us in this in these few verses this morning. In verse primarily in verse two and verse three, where uh, Sheikh and I is the one speaking. Verse two, three, and four. And the first step in repentance is to see who it is that we've sinned against. Who is it that we've actually offended? And it is always, first and foremost, God. And so Shekinah starts off by saying, we have been unfaithful to God. And yet when you read this passage, and you read last week as well, you go, hold on a sec, have you been unfaithful to your wife? Isn't that the issue? You've been unfaithful to your wife. You've sinned against your wife. That's that's the issue that you need to repent on. But Shekinah recognizes, recognizes a very biblical principle, right? 
that we first and foremost sin against God. Even though Malachi even says, you've been unfaithful to the wives of your youth, Shechaniah sings biblical truth. David says the same thing in Psalm 51. So remember, Psalm 51 is written just after David being caught out. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, something maybe even raped her, who knows. Um, he's then conspired to have Uriah killed in order to cover up what's gone on. And in doing all of that, he has, he has betrayed his family because he's got a couple of wives and kids already. So he's betrayed them and proved unfaithful to them. And he's betrayed the nation. And yet when David writes Psalm 51, he doesn't say, I have sinned against Bathsheba. I have sinned against you, Uriah. No, he, he starts Psalm 51 by saying, against you, O Lord, have I sinned. Against you. Sin is always, first and foremost, an affront against God. And yes, our sin affects other people. And yes, other people are injured and other people are ruined by what we've done and what we've said and how we've behaved. But sin always begins with a challenge to the authority and supremacy of God. Sin is always me standing up and saying, I will decide right and wrong. Not God. We sin because we effectively say, I want to continue to pursue my idols and worship them and not worship God. Our modern society likes to define sin as something that hurts other people. It's not a sin unless someone else is hurt. But the Bible defines sin as an affront against God, regardless of whether others are involved. And until you see that your sin is primarily an affront against God, you will never actually change. For, for many of us, we recognize that we offended others. We'll even apologize to them, we'll say sorry, and we'll move on. But we very seldom, I think, consider that our, our sin is an offense against God, that our sinful actions are, are an affront, are, are a direct attack on His holy sovereignty. The harsh words spoken against your wife are in fact a sin against God. Your selfish action in grabbing the last muffin is an act of treason against God as you put yourself ahead of anyone and everything else. And so Shechaniah says, we've been unfaithful to God. And he names the sin. He says, we've been unfaithful to God by uniting ourselves with foreign women. Again, it's not the cultural issue, it's the religious issue, but the syncretistic union of holiness and false worship. And Shechaniah, despite his family's deep involvement in this, is unashamed in confessing the exact nature of this affront to the rule and authority of God. The exact action that has led to unfaithfulness against God. And I just got to ask, when we, when we confess our sin, is this the language that we use? Do we tend to say, I've sinned against God? Or do we just recognize that I've sinned against my friend or my family or whoever else? Does it start with us that my greed, my short temper, my, my scathing words are first and foremost an act of unfaithfulness toward God? First step in repentance is to recognize who it is that we've ultimately sinned against. And for some, it stops there. Oh, I'm bad, I'm a horrible person, God is going to squish me like a bug, woe is me. But Shechaniah carries on. He's not like that. His next phrase is, is even better. His next phrase is, but there is hope. We have been unfaithful to our God, but there is hope. There is hope. How great is that? In the face of sin, 
that is an affront to the character of God, that is a challenge to his faithfulness, that, that, that should result in our punishment, Shekinah says that there is hope. Even though we've been unfaithful, there is hope. So here's how we could consider this, right? If the first step in repentance is to look down in horror at what we have done and go, oh boy, this is awful. The second step in repentance is to look up. Look up. Lift your eyes. Right? We say that this morning. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look up. Look to the hill called Calvary. See the cross. Look up. There is hope. See the Savior. See that God is gracious and willing to forgive. And then He sent His Son to redeem sinners like you and me. Look up because there is hope. And so here we've got Shek and I going, we have been unfaithful, and we've been unfaithful against God, our sins against Him, but there is hope. There is hope. God will not consume us in His righteous anger. And Shek and I grasped some of this, but I don't think He understands the full extent of the hope that we have. Because we know that hope has a name. I think one of our favorite songs in church at the moment, we, we sing it fairly often, we're going to sing it in a moment again this morning, Jesus Christ. Our living hope. Listen to the words. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows in my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of Kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah! Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, for death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. That's the song that Shekinah is singing, I'm sure. Despite our rebellion, despite our sin against God, there is hope. The hope of redemption, of forgiveness and transformation. Repentance always begins with the recognition of who we sinned against, sinned against God. And it always recognizes that despite that, there is hope, that there is forgiveness, that there is grace. What does Shekinah say next? What's his next suggestion? What does he do next? Well, here's the next thing that he does. He says, let's make a covenant. Let's agree to do what God calls us to do, and let's separate ourselves from our sinful actions. Right? Crucial step in repentance, an earnest desire to change. An earnest design to actually be different. A commitment to undo the evil. And I think it's obvious, and we kind of get it, and I think there are times when we do say something like this. we like, oh, I'll never do that again. I promise, I promise you I'll never, I never will. The next full moon, there will not be a dead body at my feet. I promise. I know I can change. I'm going to try harder. And we say that, but I wonder how many of us actually want to change. How many of us actually... Committed to change. I think for some people, the sense of confession is sufficient because I'll come back next week and I'll just confess again. But repentance before God requires and calls for a desire within us to change. And sometimes I just think we love our sin too much. We are too attached to our idols. And we read in this passage, there are a couple of guys that 
that resisted the change, right? Right at the end there, they, 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 Shechemiah suggests all this, they then bring it to a church meeting essentially, and they say, this is what we think, what do you guys think? And they're like, we agree with a couple of tweaks, and there's four guys who say, we don't agree, we think this is a bad thing. We thought confession was sufficient, can we just stop there? And when you take a look in the list of names, guess whose names appear in the list? <laughs> These four guys. They didn't want to change. Confession is enough, isn't it? Can we just say we're sorry, but carry on with what we're doing? I think some of us are just too comfortable with our sin, with our sinful attitudes and, and, and sinful actions that we've adopted and embraced from the culture around us. We don't even think that it's sinfulness anymore. For many of us, there's just no real desire to change. I confess that sometimes I don't want to change because change is too hard. It's easy to stay as I am. But Shekinah leads the way well for us this morning. We must change. We must want to change. We must covenant before God. We will not do this again. But again, it's easy to say, I promise I'll never do this again. And again, I think lots of us have gone there. I promise to never speak like that again. And then a week later, what are you doing? Same words. I promise the next full moon will be different. And then the next full moon comes along, and there's another dead body in your freezer. Some of us, we just kind of don't want to change. There's an earnestness to, our, to what we're saying, I promise. But, but often, despite the, the promise to change, there's no change that takes place. It's the, it's the abusive husband who, who's, who's slapped his wife around again. He says, oh, I'm so sorry, I'll never do this again. And, and the beaten wife goes away saying, he's promised he'll be different next time. And we all know that, mm, how's that going to work out? But true repentance, and again, Shekinah helps us here. True repentance doesn't just end with a, a, a desire to change, but ends with a, a plan to change. Shekinah says, it's not enough to say we're sorry. It's not enough to recognize that we've offended God. It's not enough to say we want to change. He says, we need to put a plan in place that will actually help us change. We need to put a plan in place that will actually cut out the sin that's going on in our community. And so there is there's this, there's this meeting that's cool. Everyone's going to come back in a, in, in, a, in a week's time, or a month's time, or whatever it is. And, and here's the deal, right? If you don't come to that meeting, we're going to come and we're going to confiscate your land. We have a church meeting in two weeks' time. If you do not appear at the church meeting, we're going to send the deacons around to confiscate your property. So, I'm just saying that, right? And they, they gather here, this whole, woohoo! They gather, and, uh, and they gather in the rain, and they shiver from the cold of the rain, and in awe of their God, and the rain reflects the mood of the people, and they decide as a group to go slow, but to investigate, and to investigate thoroughly. They say, we can't make a decision here and now about how to do this. We need to go home, and each person in each village needs to appear before the elders of that village, and we need to investigate. Are you hanging out with prostitutes? Are you, do you have a mistress? Have you divorced your wife and married some Canaanite idol worshipper, and is she still worshipping her idols in your home? And we're going to investigate this problem. And when they do this due diligence, at the end, I mean, it's quite a thing, right? There, there are about 40,000, we're guessing, about 40,000 refugees that have come back. Of the 40,000, 111 of them have, are guilty of this sin. So it's not exactly a huge amount, is it? 
But the point is this. There's not enough to just say, I don't want to sin, I promise I'll be better next week. What happens is that we need to take a close look at the circumstances around us and put plans in place so that we're able to change. So if it's the full moon that's the problem, then lock yourself up next time the full moon comes around, right? It's the people who say, I'm never going to get drunk again, but I'll go and buy a case of whiskey just in case the government shuts down the bottle stores again, just in case. It's not to get drunk, no, 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 it's just in case. In case what? You get drunk on Saturday night at the club and say, next week it'll be different, but you still go back to the club. And you're like, how's that going to work out for you? How's that different in any way? You've got issues with lust, but you make no difference, no changes to what you're watching on TV or Netflix or whatever. Some of us want to change, but we want to change what we want the change to come with no real effort. It's like we want to drink the same amount of alcohol but not get drunk. I've never abused my wife, but I'm still drinking the beer that results in me beating my wife. And more than that, it's not just dealing with the surface issues. We want to change without digging in and digging out the roots that, that are right deep within us. We're unwilling to do the hard work of uprooting the pride and the bitterness and the idols of our comfort and control that lie deep within and prompt the things that end up blurring out of us. And until we, we replace those worships, those idols, with the worship of the true God, we will never change. And we know this, right? But again, take a look back at the words of Shechaniah at the end there when he speaks to Israel and he says, Take courage and do it. This takes courage. It takes courage to, to cut out the things that we love so much. It takes courage to put an end to the sin that lurks and dwells within us. But Shechaniah says to Israel, take courage and do it. Do the hard thing. Divorce yourself from the sin that lurks within. Look to the cross. So here's, here's where we've gone, right? Repentance requires that we acknowledge who we've sinned against, that we look up to find hope, that we have within us a desire for change, and then we put in place some plans that will result in actual change. And so we've hit the end of Ezra. We're done. We're not going to read Ezra next week. Isn't that good news? But you're like, does Ezra end well? That last verse, it, 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 the implication is that the women and children are sent away. That's sad, isn't it? That, that's hard. That's hard. But it's what was required for the holiness of God's people. That is, people put aside their mistresses, but they separate themselves from their idols, and if we're going to enter the kingdom of God, if we're going to enter His kingdom and enjoy His fullness, we must do the same. And so we've got to be with Shechemiah and Israel and take courage and Nike. Right? Just do it. I'm going to sing again. I'm going to sing Living Hope. And then we're going to enjoy communion together. I hope some communion stuff with you this morning. And we're going to sing with these thoughts in our mind. And we're going to eat and drink as a sign and a symbol our repentance before God. And perhaps you need to just take a moment while we're singing and while just before we eat and drink to, to just reflect on where is that you are, what is that you've done that is that is an, an offense to God to in, in our communion find there is hope, have a desire for change, and a comfortable plan 
So let's stand. Get on the phone here and um, we'll sing the one.
and to be seated. Thank you. 